back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and pick their brains about their lives and careers. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by biomedical scientist, immunologist, and carnivorous plant aficionado, Richard Charlesworth. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Nice to be here. Now, is gluten evil? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a very good question. For some people, yes. Mm-hmm. For some people who have been diagnosed with celiac disease, gluten is actually evil. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, not so much. Okay. But also the jury's kind of out on that one. Uh, oh, in what mm. way? Well, we do know that gluten can spark reactions in people with celiac disease, and that's been well documented. Mm. But we also know of people who have some sort of effect when they eat gluten, but they just don't know why that effect is actually coming about. So that's where research is currently focused at the moment. So people with celiac disease have a particular suite of symptoms. What are these other reactions that seem to be uh, associated with gluten? This is where things get tricky because a lot of the symptoms that we see with celiac disease are what we also see with the the gluten spectrum of disorders. Okay. So you can think of it as a kind of iceberg. So the very, very tip of the iceberg, we have the people who are diagnosed with celiac disease and know that they have a particular reaction to gluten. Mm-hmm. Then we have this huge mass that's under the water, and we don't quite know how many people are in that mass. The symptoms that they experience, there's no real kind of consensus. We know that they react when they eat gluten or foods that contain gluten, but we just don't know what actually prompts that reaction mm-hmm. to occur. So mm. I, I happen to know people who have uh, almost like skin allergies yes, in yes. response to Absolutely. gluten products. So we can have the response to gluten via celiac disease. You can mm. get a skin rash that might occur. Yep. But you can also get allergic responses to gluten. So if it touches your skin, it sort of flares up in a wheel that you normally see. Because mm-hmm. mm. a while ago, uh, it was, well, it started off with everybody talking about gluten-free diet being the next big thing and then there was almost like a backlash of people saying well no you're not actually celiac so gluten's fine Hmm. no it sounds like we're somewhere in the middle we're sort of somewhere in the middle and the current thinking at the moment is it may not be the gluten that's actually sort of causing a response in these patients it might be something else in the grain okay. and that's where we start to look at fermentable products that we find in these grains mm. Mm. so what is gluten then gluten is the protein that makes wheat spongy All so right. whenever you're baking and you end up with nice fluffy bread rolls that always come out when you're baking because they always end up perfect mm. it's those chains of gluten that form in kind of sheets mm. and as the air kind of goes through it puffs them up and you end up with that kind of elastic structure to mm. wheat products. If you don't have that, that's where you end up with gluten-free food. But it tends to be a little bit tougher and it tends to be a bit flatter because we don't have that gluten to provide the stretchiness in the grains. Yeah, I mean, if mm. you've ever tried to eat bread that's made with rice flour, it's just terrible it's and crumbly. It's an experience, and... yes. <laughs> yes. I call it baked disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's the thing that makes it spongy, but at a yeah. biochemical level, do we know what it is that people are reacting to in the actual gluten molecule. yes well, well, at a molecular gluten. level is there something there that's that's reacting with absolutely so yeah. when we eat gluten it gets broken down by our guts into mm-hmm. a series of polypeptides when they get broken down we end up with very specific what we call epitopes mm-hmm. and the epitopes are what actually causes the immune system to react 
Mm-hmm. So people with celiac disease inherit a particular receptor on their immune cells, and those epitopes of gluten bind with really, really high affinity to those receptors. Okay. And when that happens, it triggers that autoimmune reaction to occur. Yeah. Hmm. So this isn't some sort of adaptive response to gluten gone awry. This is a, sort that's, of a weird that's coincidence. That's again where the jury's out. We're not okay. 100% <laughs> sure why this response exists. It yeah. might just be that it's a dietary antigen that we're encountering all the time. It just so happens to bind to this receptor with really high affinity. Yeah. But we're just not sure why yeah. the gene actually came about. So it's hmm. an immune response. It's it's the body saying this is something foreign and I don't like it. Yes. So is that the same across this spectrum? Not necessarily. <laughs> no. <laughs> All <laughs> so right. Again, it's going to be a complex discussion. It is. Celiac <laughs> disease at one end of the scale is that autoimmune reaction. Okay. So that's where the body goes, there's gluten. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. Yeah. With the rest of the spectrum, so things like gluten sensitivity, gluten intolerance, we don't know what causes these reactions. Mm. We know that patients are suffering bloating, cramping, abdominal pain. We don't know if that's an autoimmune reaction that actually Mm. occurs or whether it's just the fermentable products that are in there, whether there's some sort of disbalance with their gut microbiota Mm. and they just can't break down these products as efficiently as other people. Mm. So celiac disease is definitely that autoimmune side of things. The rest of it, we just don't know what's Mm. actually causing that reaction to occur. So if we've got this huge spectrum of things that can be happening, how do you distinguish a genuine celiac disease case as opposed to the rest? Again, this is also okay. tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so celiac disease diagnosis, normally the front line is blood testing. Mm. So we look for levels of certain autoantibodies within the blood. Yeah. If they're elevated, the next stage is to look at the tissue itself. Mm-hmm. So using endoscopy, so we put a tube down the mouth through the stomach and into the small intestine and take a very, very small piece of tissue from the wall and then basically look at that under the microscope. And there's a number of characteristic changes that you can see. But it's very, very difficult to diagnose someone with celiac disease that way because Mm. the tissue is, it might not be the appearance that you were expecting. So some people have full-blown celiac disease and you really don't see any difference in their tissue whatsoever. So this isn't just a, a litmus test kit you can do at no, home. This is no, an this is thing. Very, very tricky. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And how long would that usually take then to get that process? Yeah. It's normally about a week to okay. get that process done. Yeah. Mm. But you're working on ways to improve this, right? Yes. So at the moment, it's very, very subjective. Mm. So the pathologist will look at the tissue and go, that, "Yeah, that looks like celiac disease to me." Mm. But it depends on the orientation of the tissue, depends if the patient is actually on gluten at the time. There's a lot of different factors Mm. that can come into play. So even though the amount of damage might be quite mild, the case of celiac disease could be very, very severe and Mm. vice versa. Mm. So instead of actually looking at the tissue, what I've tried to do is take the human factor out altogether. So instead of measuring things by eye, actually measure them under the microscope okay. and try and assign a number to things that we see yeah. and then basically use maths to separate these patients. Mm. Hmm. How then do you choose your threshold That's if you're using good, maths? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Mm. So what we try and do is group patients using, mm. called, using a technique called discriminant analysis. Mm-hmm. So we know that a certain 
cluster of patients will cluster because of a number of factors that come into the tissue. Mm. So increases in certain cells, decreases in length of villi, for example. We know that we can kind of group patients into a certain cluster. With discriminant analysis, we can separate groups of patients. Mm. So based on their scores that we assign under the microscope, we can basically pull them apart into different groups and then actually measure the distance between those groups. Mm. Mm. So essentially you take all these measurements of people you know, with and without these symptoms, the ones that have them sort of, you stick them all on a graph and mm-hmm. they sort of cluster in one area. So we have a healthy cluster on one side, we yeah. have an unhealthy cluster on the other side. Yeah. That all works really, really well. Mm. The problem is it's not really that good to separate between the different grades of celiac disease. Mm-hmm. So we can determine healthy and normal looking at the tissue, but we can't really separate the different grades. We can't look at mild, we can't look at Mm. severe, we can't really plot treatment or any of those sorts of things by doing this particular technique. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned before that there's some sort of genetic factor that actually is coding for different antigens. Is there the possibility then for genetic testing for this stuff? There's already genetic testing for celiac disease. So the gene itself, one of the human leukocyte antigens, It's an altered form of that gene that you inherit. The problem is around 30% of the population already have that gene, Mm. but they don't all develop celiac disease. So even if you're positive for having that particular genotype, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to develop celiac disease later down the track. All right. Mm. (laughs) Again, it gets tricky. (laughs) (laughs) It's also a bit of a problem with this stuff when we say you have this particular gene, that implies that there's something wrong with it or this, this is some sort of a, uh, a, a mutant gene or something, mm. but it's probably just, an, it's a, just a normal variant of the gene, right? It's just a normal variant. It is associated with a number of different autoimmune conditions, so mm. type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, but we, it's just a normal variant of that particular gene. It's kind of like lactose intolerance in the way we talk about that being yes. some sort of some, something wrong with the person, but that's mm. probably more normal than it being is. lactose it intolerant, is. Right? The vast majority of the population will be lactose intolerant by the end of their lives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just take a long time to wean. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it depends on the population too. Like mm. We're here to you know, primarily Caucasian Western populations, mm. so we do pretty good with lactose. Yes, whereas in other populations, not so much. It doesn't end particularly well. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the same with gluten then? Absolutely. So celiac disease is primarily a disease of Caucasian people. So in Scandinavia, it's around 4 or 5% of the population that have celiac disease. Mm -hmm. In the rest of the world, it's about 1% of the population. There's also some interesting kind of clusters that you can see. So particularly the Tuareg and Berber people of North Africa have huge rates of celiac disease. Oh. It can be 10, 12% of their populations. Why? We don't know. <laughs> we just, we simply don't know. Yeah. Hmm. But we do know, at least in the West anyway, that it's on the rise. Yes. Again, do we know why? No. Again. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know why celiac disease is on the rise. It's certainly well documented. Whether we're just detecting more cases of celiac disease, whether it was always prevalent at that rate, the symptoms don't necessarily have to be that severe. And it might just be general digestive upset that people just take for granted in Mm. their daily life. Now that there's more awareness about celiac disease, there's more exposure towards celiac disease, we're not sure if we're just detecting more cases 
or whether it is actually increasing in prevalence. Mm. There's a theory that we call the hygiene hypothesis where everything is too clean these days. Mm. Humans, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we had worms, we lived with parasites, dirt, it was everywhere. Mm. As everything keeps getting more and more clean, our immune system isn't exposed to those same challenges that it Mm. used to have. And it gets bored, essentially. (laughs) And if it gets bored, it can start to recognise self-proteins. Yeah. So there's interesting studies if you actually look at the rates of worm infestations in humans over the centuries, and you look at the rates of autoimmune disease, and you see that as the prevalence of worms decreases, the prevalence of autoimmune disease actually increases in that Mm. time. So whether it's that we're just too clean and our immune system starts to react to normally harmless antigens, Mm. or whether it's that we're just detecting more cases of celiac disease, we really don't know the answer to that one yet. Well, people are saying that same kind of thing about peanut allergies and hay fever and things. Exactly, exactly. We're less uh, finicky about hygiene, maybe Mm. we'd be more resilient from the get-go. Absolutely. And this is also the subject of some interesting new treatments for celiac disease. So celiac disease is what we call a Th1 immune condition. Mm. So we polarise our immune cells to what we call a Th1 immune response. We have many different immune responses. So there's Th1, Th2, Th17. So they really numbered them quite well when they invented these. (laughs) Th2 is more what we see in parasitic infections. Mm. The interesting thing is if you have a Th2 response, you can shut down a Th1 response. Oh. So there's work at the moment with actually giving celiac patients hookworm infection, (laughs) giving them a really strong Th2 response, and it shuts down the Th1. So it stops their celiac reaction. The only problem is a hookworm infection is far worse than the (laughs) symptoms of celiac disease. (laughs) So work at the moment is actually trying to isolate what it is in the worm that actually polarises towards that TH2 response. Okay, Mm. and is that working by changing the under some sort of threshold within the immune system or is it more of a misdirection it's basically sending it in a misdirection yeah. making it react against something else yeah. and shutting down that first celiac immune reaction that occurs yeah <laughs> now i happen to know that you can talk about this stuff from a personal perspective yes so i was diagnosed when i was 15 with mm. celiac disease yeah mm. did this affect your career path in any way. <laughs> well, I can say I was always interested in celiac disease, let's yeah. face it. And I can also say that, you know, back in my day, we, <laughs> d- we didn't have an aisle of gluten-free food. Yeah. You, had to, you had to make do. There mm. was a tiny, tiny little section in the health food section where you could get exotic things like rice flour. <laughs> People would go, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think I've always had a personal interest in mm. celiac disease from that side of things. Do you do you get annoyed when people that don't need to yes. avoid gluten because it's hip and trendy? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And the problem is it's becoming a really big issue at the moment because mm. a lot of people go into restaurants and say, oh, I have celiac disease. Oh. And serving staff go, oh, another one. <laughs> another one. Yeah. And if you're actually celiac and you go in, you get lumped in that same category. Yeah. So you have to really, really be quite forceful and really be quite sort of oh I don't know how to put it to make sure that they're actually listening to what you say yeah you're it's turning into a boy who cried wolf situation everybody claims they're allergic absolutely and people go oh not another one oh Mm. look it'll be fine just there's not there's not a lot of gluten (laughs) in it it'll be fine yeah Mm. and there's no uh 
I, there's no cheap way to do it. Like I know a couple of friends that are lactose intolerant, but they just love ice cream, so they just eat a bunch of ice cream and then take a bunch of lactase Yes, and tablets. just hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not really a same thing with, with celiac disease, unfortunately. Mm. The minute you are triggered against that gluten molecule, that immune response is always ready to go. Mm. So those immune cells are always living within your guts, and they're always waiting for gluten to come past again. Yeah. And the minute it does, they react against mm. that molecule. But for people that aren't celiac but have some sort of intolerance, some sort of disagreement with with it, I, I don't know, is it a good just rule of thumb to avoid gluten or, or avoid wheat products and, and see what happens anyway? It's always good if you're having some sort of digestive upset to mm. follow the elimination diets that yeah. exist. So there's diets where you eliminate everything, you see if your symptoms improve. Mm. The problem is you need to start reintroducing things again. Yeah. So a lot of people go on, on an elimination diet, they get rid of everything from their diet, they feel fantastic, so they just don't eat like, mm. like people should. You have to start reintroducing things. Mm. And if gluten is the thing when you reintroduce it, your symptoms return, then perhaps remove gluten from your diet. Mm. But should we all be following a gluten-free diet? Absolutely no. Mm. It's not a very healthy option for people that don't need to follow it. Yeah. Mm. And, and bread's just great. It, it, yes. <laughs> I mean, I've, it's, I've been out of the bread game for some time, <laughs> I have to admit. The gluten-free breads have improved. Yeah. They, they don't break your teeth anymore. Mm. They're actually doing new and interesting things with bamboo fiber and things to make them a little bit more spongy. Yeah. But if you don't need to be on a gluten-free diet, don't be on a gluten-free diet. Yeah. Mm. I feel like, I mean, crazy diets are all the fad diets. It's mm. keto and paleo and all of, yes. carnivore diets yes. and frugivore and diets. Flexitarians. And, and, mm -hmm. I feel like one common thread amongst all of them, though, is that carbs in general but more specifically wheat is sort of public enemy number one mm. and i don't know where wheat's got such a bad rap okay. i really don't know why why what <laughs> what what are some of its <laughs> redeeming factors because there are things like rye and buckwheat and things that they say are mm. less severe so things like rye in some celiacs it can promote a reaction mm. in others they don't have that strong a response yeah but it's generally wheat, oats, barley, and rye need to be avoided with celiac disease. Okay. Interestingly, buckwheat is perfectly fine. Okay. Hmm. Um, I don't know where wheat got such a bad rap. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's not the dangerous, nasty thing that it's been made, made out to be. Mm. And, I mean, from wheat you get a lot of your B vitamins. There's really, there's nothing against wheat. Mm. It's just with people with celiac disease, we can't, we just can't do wheat. <laughs> Uh, do you think at a population level are we eating more of it and is that maybe why we're finding more cases so uh, we were also mm. talking with Gal Winter on this podcast ages mm. ago and she was also talking about problems with you know, modern diets and how much of it is uh, just kind of like white flour or cornstarch and those mm. sorts of things and that comes from modern agriculture mm. do you know if there's anything talking about just the fact that maybe we're eating more just grain-based products. Not sure. I mean, you could you could hypothesise that 
the the refining process that they have with wheats, it's removing a lot of that outer coating and it's making a lot of that kind of inner part of the grain more accessible. Mm. And that's where you're going to find these molecules. Mm. And if they're more refined, they're more easily able to be broken down. Yeah. And when that happens, you can get those epitopes that will be released. Mm. But I'm not sure if there's too much research actually mm. into that, whether it's the fact that we're eating more grains, yeah. if that's actually causing these reactions to occur. Right, because mm. they do say that whole grain is always better mm. simply because it's got more stuff in it and the, yes. the, the, the evil stuff is less concentrated, right? Yes, we yeah. can assume so. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, I think it just comes down to... Absolutely. Uh, but whole grain food. gluten-free bread is an experience. Oh. It's it's rugged, we can say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, your research into this stuff got a, a PR boost, I guess, last year when you it took did. part in FameLab. It did. How was that? Tell us what FameLab is for people that don't know about it. So FameLab is a science communication competition that's run by the British Council. Mm-hmm. So it's basically you stand up for three minutes and you talk about some aspect of your research mm. and you don't have any notes, you've got no slides, you've got nothing to assist you, you mm. just have to remember what you have to say for yeah. three minutes, but you can take some sort of prop that yeah. illustrates your research. So you put in some sort of audition mm-hmm. and you just I recorded that with my tablet in front of my computer in my <laughs> office and they said, oh well, give him a go. So I went to the state finals in Sydney Mm -hmm. and ended up winning the state finals in Sydney and then went to the national final in Perth last year. Mm. Hmm. But it's really, really great fun. (laughs) So what approach did you take? Because I know some people turn up with props and costumes and a song and a dance and stuff. Some, the first one where I went to the national, I had nothing. Because <laughs> I have to admit, I was really not prepared for the level of showmanship that other people went to. <laughs> and I was sitting in the audience thinking, oh my God, I yeah. have no chance of yeah. getting through this. There were people that had clearly taken some drama classes in their lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So I went with a very, very simple approach. And I guess by the end, I was my own prop because I spoke from my own experience and said, I have celiac disease, and this is what it is, and this is why I'm trying to help people get a better diagnosis and a more quick and more accurate diagnosis. Mm. For the national finals, I went with something a little bit different, and I found a dog toy in the shape of a donut and (laughs) took that on stage. (laughs) That was your prop. That was my prop. And I had a box that had biohazard and warning labels all over it, and I went on stage with gloves. (laughs) And it was great because I watched all the security people just tense the minute I got on stage. What's he bringing <laughs> And I started off by saying, I've brought along a sample of a highly, highly dangerous substance. And I could see the judges sort of like inching back ever so slightly. And I pulled out my donut. Everyone went, oh. I remember when I did it, it was last year as well, mm. one of the people in our group was a snake handler and yeah. wanted to bring along a snake. It was just kind of sad because the, the venue had to pull her aside and say, no, we, no, we can't. We, we can't, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, t- yeah, it was just a real shame, but you know, she got a, a rubber snake and, <laughs> and stuck with that. I was at the stage I had to make two props because I had my box and yeah. I covered it in biohazard labels and I went, oh, that looks amazing as a prop. <laughs> and then I went, I have to go through an airport. Oh, <laughs> So I had to make a second prop with all those labels separate and then put the labels on quickly in my hotel room the day before and then get rid of that prop. And I remember telling the cleaning staff at the hotel that it's, it's an empty box. There is nothing biohazardous in it. Just burn it just in case. Yeah, just, 
<laughs> Tear any trades? Throw it in the bin? <laughs> it, it is an, it's a weird thing, FameLab, because, mm. I mean, it's got the word fame in it. They're, they say that they're on the search for mm. the next big science communicators. Mm. Is, is it true that you know, Brian Cox sort of came out of this? Wasn't that the story of the first ever FameLab? I think from memory, yeah. That was where he was actually kind of discovered. And there's certainly been a lot of science talent that you get to see at yeah. FameLab. Hmm. But I don't know if they've they've found since another then. diamond in the rough since then. I don't know. Well, they, they missed me, clearly. So, <laughs> yeah. And they missed you. So, <laughs> But I mean, how do you feel about that, that fame side of it? Do you think it's a good thing to be trying to make a I think, science celebrity? I think it is in a way because it... it sort of increases the awareness of science in particular. Mm. So there's a lot more around science communication these days and making science more accessible to people. I think that's a fantastic thing. Mm. A lot of people don't really know what we do on a daily basis. Mm. They don't really understand what we do. But to break it down and make it a bit more accessible for people so they can understand what we do, Mm. I think that's a fantastic thing to have. Mm. Mm. I did realise when I was doing it that there are those people who essentially want to be a science celebrity. Yes. Like, like you said, there are people that have done quite a few drama classes, mm-hmm. and then there are other people who, probably like ourselves, who do science and just enjoy communicating it. Yes, yes. And I feel sorry for the, the people that want to be science celebrities, because that's the road of... It's a very tough road, yes. It's a road of rejection and, mm-hmm. and being exposed and embarrassed and, and yes. all that sort of stuff. Yep. <laughs> Yep, and like I said, I was not prepared for when you get pushed on stage, and I thought, "Oh my god, okay, great, let's do this." <laughs> What's the fallout been then? Has has it died down a bit? Or it has died down a little bit. Yeah, which I have to say is good, particularly yeah. with the teaching that I do. I'm able to actually focus on my job again now. <laughs> but it was good because it helped to increase my exposure a little bit. Yeah, hmm. and so did you think it helped career-wise? Because um, you know you know work here at the University of New England. I do. So I was actually employed before I went to FameLab. Okay. So I think it has been a boost in visibility, mm. but probably not so much of a boost career-wise for me, yeah. for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're here now teaching. What sort of stuff are you teaching? So I lecture in gastroenterology mm-hmm. and I lecture in immunology. So mostly to science, um, nursing, health, medicine, those mm. sorts of things. And when you're not teaching and not doing research, mm-hmm. I, I've learnt that you're a carnivorous plant I am. fan. I am. So I've been growing carnivorous plants um, for a very, very long time, since I was about 12 years old. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are, are you a, a more of a sundew kind of guy? Or a, I, have a, a, I have a selection of plants. Okay. So I grow sundews, I grow Venus flytraps, pitcher plants, all sorts of things. Yeah. So people come into my house and they're, they're very, very frightened to move. Because it's just an array of carnivorous plants in front of them. (laughs) (laughs) And we are in Armadale, which Mm -hmm. gets quite cold and isn't really pitcher plant country. Mm -hmm. What's the key to keeping them alive then? Terrariums. Right. Lots and lots of terrariums. (laughs) So I have my rare and wonderfuls in one particular terrarium. Mm. There's some others that do quite well. So North American pitcher plants, they can get snowed on. There's not really much of a problem. They go dormant for winter. But the others... I put them on my sunny windowsill, mm. and they're mostly happy. Mm. And 
what is it about a carnivorous plant as opposed to, I don't know, keeping orchids or sunflowers or... I don't know. Carnivorous plants are just interesting. <laughs> Let's face it, they're just cool. And people say to me, oh, you must be a good gardener. I'm not. I'm, I'm <laughs> hopeless. Outside, I have no idea. Yeah. I do things with Roundup and a saw. That's my main tools for gardening. <laughs> but inside with carnivorous plants, that's where I devote all of my time. And how, they're not all that carnivorous, right? It's not like you need to feed them once a day or anything. No, not once a day, about once a month. I oh, need really? to feed my plants. So you actually go around and, and hand feed them? I do, yep. I do. When I was younger and more stupid and I had a stronger stomach, I used to blend insects and, <laughs> and freeze them down and feed them like little tiny aliquots of insects. Well, I don't do that anymore. I've, <laughs> I've since learned. <laughs> so what do you do now? Just, do you have to order? I order. So I order crickets well. online, freeze them, and then just slowly feed them. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. Some plants, it needs to be alive. They enjoy the thrill of the chase, I guess. <laughs> so they need to actually keep that movement for their traps to work properly. Yeah. But others, you just basically add some insects to the pitchers and they're happy. All right, so they actually mm. genuinely need these to be healthy. It's yeah. not like it just supplementary Some people minerals. feed with like fish food or they feed with um, oh, different sort of seaweed derivatives and things like that. But live feeding is still the best way to keep them. Alright, mm. so you're a Little Shop of Horrors fan? I have seen Little Shop of Horrors. I have read The Day of the Triffids. I've, <laughs> I've done all the required reading and watching for growing yeah. carnivorous plants. <laughs> <laughs> and is there, uh, in terms of your collection, is there something you're, something rare you'd love to get your hands on? Ooh, there's a lot rare I'd like to get my hands on. Yeah. The problem is Aquas and yeah. importing things. It doesn't really doesn't really work particularly well. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's... I always just assume plants are easy because Australia is covered in exotic plants and garden centres are full of them. No. I think um, a lot of the quarantine laws, they look at carnivorous things and freak out and assume that it's going to be a noxious weed and it's going to grow for miles. So there's a lot of things I'd love. <laughs> just because it says the word carnivorous, it's... Uh, well, that, I don't know, unless I assume that it's just going to kind of take off. Yeah. The best experience I've had so far was I ordered from an online nursery in Victoria mm. and they wrote carnivorous plants fragile <laughs> all over the box. And I've never seen a postman so scared in my life. He, he literally <laughs> threw the box at me and then just ran back to his car. <laughs> He'd obviously seen Little Chopper Harris. Absolutely. He knew exactly what was happening. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And what... What's Australia like then for carnivorous plants? Um, there's a few native species of carnivorous plants. So there's a couple of sundews that grow particularly in tropical Queensland. Mm. We have a carnivorous plant called Biblis, which mm -hmm. grows sort of more towards the north of Australia. And in Perth, we have Cephalotus, or the Albany pitcher plant. Mm. So if you can get your hands on an Albany pitcher plant, it's the gem in your collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we have a couple of different carnivorous species in Australia. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I always associate them with uh, Bornean highlands and things. Yes. So they're, they're here, yeah. at least. Yeah. Okay, hmm. good. <laughs> <laughs> now, and in my uh, online stalking of you before the podcast, I which see, I always yes. do, hmm. and lots of your hobbies came up. Oh, okay. Uh, so carnivorous plants is one of them. Archery is another one. Yes. Floating is another one. Yes. Is that the word? Floating? Fluting? Floating? Fluting? I don't know. Flo I've, never, I've never known the verb, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Playing the flute. <laughs> yes. So I've played the flute since I was about eight, nine years old. All right. Yeah. So you, you have long-term hobbies. I do. You, you've had carnivorous plants and fl- floating Fluting and, and an interest in yes. celiac since yes. you're a teenager. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, you've got to be pretty good at these then. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say particularly good, but <laughs> I don't make people cry anymore, so it must be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is it in, in a local orchestra? or No, no, no. I haven't been in an orchestra for a very long time. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so hmm. it's just at home. It's just a personal thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what about archery? Where does that fit into this? Archery, again, I've done for many, many, many years. Yeah. So I shoot the Olympic style of recurve. And I've more recently gotten to the traditional side of things, so longbow and horsebow. Okay, mm. so you're going to have to explain the difference between these Okay, things. so the Olympic style of recurve is basically the bow that doesn't have the little wheels on the end. Okay. So yep. the really, really technological advanced bows that you see people shooting have a pulley system mm-hmm. that actually makes it easier to pull yep. the bow back. Recurve bows are more traditional. So you have to have the strength to pull it back and you have to hold it there that whole time. Yeah. So I've always shot recurve. And then the more traditional side of things with longbow are the very old-fashioned, very tall bows that you see. Yeah. And horsebow is a more sort of compact version that you'd find. So it's the things you see in Mongolian horsebows, for example. Or I have to ask, are you doing this on horseback? No. Okay. No, I have never ridden a horse in my life. I never <laughs> intend to ride a horse in my life. But the horse side of archery is something I've, I don't know, I've always been interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to hear that the this Olympic recurve hmm. style of archery is, I guess, a simple form of archery. It is. Because the bows, they look quite They look savvy. very, very technological. Yeah. And it's more sort of in the last 20 or 30 years that they've started to kind of manufacture them a little bit differently. Mm. So my first bow was made of fiberglass. The mm-hmm. bow I shoot now is mostly aluminium and carbon fiber. Mm. So they have kind of come on in the yeah. last couple of years. Mm. So does it come down to simply know, how rigid that bow can be and how strong you are at pulling it back then? Essentially, yeah. 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 And the bows that have the fancy wheels and pulleys and things... Are they just for hunting? Is that the idea? Um, mostly use them for hunting, but you can also use them for target archery as well. Mm-hmm. It just means you can hold them for longer. Well, why would you want that? If it's target archery, mm-hmm. I mean, those hunting bows can like go through bricks. Like, yes. Some of them are quite extreme. Yes. Why do you want something that extreme for target archery? For target, it's more the accuracy of things. So mm-hmm. you can hold it for longer. You can think about it for a little bit longer. With the recurve side of things that I shoot, you have about 10 to 20 seconds before your muscles go, you need to let this go now. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, I guess if you've got a stronger, fancy pulley bow, the the speed at which that's going through the air means you can kind of point and shoot a little bit. Yes. As opposed to thinking about the the arc of your shot. So I prefer to think about arcs and I like to kind of judge things by eye and Mm. all of that. With the compound bows, it's basically point and it's it's there before you can even think. With my side of archery, you have to think about trajectories, you have to think about wind. There's Mm. a lot of different little corrections that you have to make. And so Mm. you're going further down that way of, uh, I don't know, that archery philosophy by then getting into longbow and horsebow? Absolutely. So particularly when you get into longbow, everything's heavier, everything's flatter, and it makes you think a lot more about where you're actually aiming. Yeah. Yeah. 
and, and you've got to, I don't know, you, you lick your finger and feel the where you direction do. of the wind and you all do. that stuff. And the traditional side of archery tends to be the more fun side of archery. Mm. So people at the really competitive, technological, high end of things, everything's within millimeter accuracy and you know mm. they really get quite intense. The traditional side, if you hit the bale, it's a win. <laughs> 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 and so you're competing in these things. Um, yeah. I have competed in the past, yeah. but I haven't competed for a very long time. <laughs> so what's involved in a competition? What sort of? Because I've you know mm-hmm. been along for a, a fun day out and tried archery, mm-hmm. where I'm pretty sure we're like you know five meters away from a target and yep. you're giving the kids about bows. Yeah. When you're actually doing it properly, it depends on the style of archery. So target archery that they do in the Olympics, it's from 70, 80 meters away. Okay. And you have six shots. Yeah. And you have to get as close to the center of the target as possible. Yeah. There's also field archery. So field archery is like golf, but more interesting. So <laughs> you basically on. have a course that you walk around and a variety of targets at different distances. And you have to basically judge how far away the target is. Mm. And there's all differences in elevation. So some targets can be quite high, some can be quite low. They can be hidden behind trees, hidden behind rocks. It sort of makes you think a little bit yeah. more. So I've tended to go more for the field side of things yeah. recently. So hmm. you could be thinking about curving arrows around a tree using um, the probably wind not, speed and but stuff. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ricochet off this rock here. And I have yeah. ricocheted before, but mostly it destroys the arrow. Not uh, on purpose? Um, not on purpose, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the way you're talking about this hmm. and, and getting excited about that stuff, I think it's a matter of time before I hear that you're on a horseback. Oh, look, who, who knows? Um, I don't think that day will ever come. <laughs> I don't know. It's just another fun layer of complexity to mm-hmm. try and count in your horse's speed and mm-hmm. canter or whatever. Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I'm asking about all these, this hobby stuff hmm. is because... You know, I've been at this regional university for a bit over two years now, mm. and I started encountering this really, really strange thing when I got here, is that people in at this university tend to mm. have lives outside of academia. Yes, it's a thing. It does exist. <laughs> <laughs> and working in metropolitan universities, mm. it's really rare. Mm. Why do you think that is? I honestly don't know. I've always believed in having a life outside of academia. I think mm. you need to have a life outside of academia. Otherwise, you run, you run the risk of just losing yourself along mm. the way. So I've always had that philosophy that you need to be able to do something outside of what you do for a job. Mm. But I don't know why it's sort of more common in country universities. Not well, sure. I mean, the big thing I noticed is that mm. I don't have a three-hour commute. Well, there's Each that. day, yes. so there's, there's literally time to kill. Yes. <laughs> and you sort of get home and think, what do I do? Yeah. Hmm. Well, no, that's genuinely what happened. Mm. I, I would, when I first got here, I would finish work, go home, make dinner, shove it down my throat, wash the dishes, and it was hmm? six o'clock. Hmm? I was like, oh, well, I got, <laughs> Great. I'm not going to do with all this time. <laughs> so I was the same. I grew up in Sydney, and I was used to leaving things leaving for things like an hour, an hour and a half early from when I had to be there. Mm. I did that when I first came here to mm. do university. I left an hour early and I got here an hour early. Yeah. And I thought, great, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible now because I've become that person that if I need to be somewhere at three o'clock, 
Yeah. I'll leave at three o'clock and then just apologize for being five minutes late. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> and people will say, oh, the traffic in Armadale, the traffic's <laughs> dreadful. And like, you, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but do you think if you were at a city university or in like a super competitive top eight university, mm. you'd be able to keep this work-life balance? Probably not, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. Do you think the same? Uh, no, I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't want to say that, what am I trying to say? I think that the expectations of you at a smaller university are more realistic. Mm. And you're there to sort of have that balance a little bit more, I think. Yeah, yeah. there's presumably you'll, you'll have less students that you have to deal with. There's smaller teams that you're working with, so mm-hmm. there's just less, I don't know, paperwork and, and red tape so you can still get your research done hmm. within work hours. No, I think so. And I think it's good to promote that kind of balance. And mm. I'd like to see more of it too. Yeah. Hmm. It was nice. Another person we talked to on the podcast was David Lamb, hmm. who is, is head honcho of all things science hmm. around here. And, and he pretty much said right in the open, I never want to work at a top eight university. I never want to work in a city. Hmm. This is where I want to be. Hmm. Okay. So having grown up in Sydney and come here now to Armadale, is this it? This um, it was a culture shock initially. <laughs> it was a massive, massive culture shock initially. In, in what way? It's more the quiet. Oh. And the fact that it's, you know, at eight o'clock, there's no noise. There's mm. just nothing. And I was used to traffic lights and people and noise and trucks. And yeah. I'm used to that. But now I've sort of just started to get used to the silence, but it's probably going to take me a, l- a couple more years just to be completely comfortable with that. Yeah. But yeah, Armadale's home for now. Right. Yeah. But we'll see what happens in the future. <laughs> it is academia. You never know. Absolutely. Where you can end up. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of this, I should probably let you get back and, and do work. And it's the first week of teaching, so. Absolutely. Mm. You, you, you better get started. I, <laughs> I better try and remember what I have to do. <laughs> well, if people want to find out more about your work, they can follow you on Twitter. They can. So at Dr. Carnivorous mm, is my okay. Twitter handle. There, there's the carnivorous plant. There it is. Yep. It's, it's good. I'm glad you went for that and not at Dr. Well, gluten. At Dr. Colon. At Dr. Dr. Carnivorous. And they can check out your teaching profile online. Hold on. Yep. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, That's Richard. Right. Thanks for having me. And thank you guys for listening. Check our site at institutescience.com and we're at Institute Science on social media. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.